Hey, everybody. Welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. I'm Christy Brower, here with my co-host, sister, and partner in crime, Katie Weaver. Hey, Katie. How's it going? Hello. I'm well. Doing good. Trying to, uh, you know, make a list and check it twice. Oh, right. <laughs> Feeling a little Gosh. frantic about Christmas and not being very prepared, but, you know, that'll all come out in the wash, right? <laughs> I, you know, every day I look at the date and I'm like, oh, my hell. It's coming right up. I should probably get on a few things. Me too. I actually have a stupid amount of things to do, but you know what? It'll happen. It's going to come no matter what. Whatever you've got done is what you've got done, I guess. (laughs) Merry Christmas. I was going to do a lot more, but I ran out of time. Yeah. That's just kind of of reality for all of us, right? Probably. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Well, this is a cold read case. So in a cold read case, I present a case to Katie and she is going to read it for us. And Katie does these for me as well. So Katie doesn't know who this case is about. I just sent her a picture of the person we're going to be talking about. She doesn't know anything about this case. We really find these very fun and interesting. Um, This one is more um, horrifying and sickening than anything. But I think that your read will be very interesting for us. So this is not an unsolved case. This is a solved case. Mm-hmm. But there are some elements that I feel like you as a medium particularly could give us some great um, information about. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about American serial killer Carl Panzram. Carl, so Carl Panzram? Panzram. P-A-N-Z-R-A-M. Yeah, his uh, parents were um, Prussian immigrants to the U.S. So he was born on June 28th, 1891, and died September 5th, 1930. Not only was he a serial killer, he was also a serial rapist, arsonist, robber, and burglar. Okay. Uh, In prison confessions and his own autobiography, which he did, I'll explain, but he did a lot of writing about himself and his um, escapades. He claims to have committed about 22 murders, although they those only a few of those have actually been collaborated. But um, officials actually think that he probably killed around 100 people. But he also admits to over a thousand acts of sodomy of boys and men. He raped wow. uh, men primarily and boys, uh, <laughs> which is just insane. Uh, He was quite proud of that um, fact, of of that fact. Uh, He, well, and at the time, those were just not spoken of. They weren't reported. Not reported. No, definitely not shared in the least. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to when he's on death row, um, a prison guard kind of befriends him. He's actually kind to him and gives him money to buy cigarettes. And Carl says that that is the first nice thing anyone has ever done for him in his entire life. And Mm -hmm. so he starts writing letters to this prison guard and telling some of the stories of his life. And that's why we know quite a few of the things that he'd done, because most of the things he's done, he'd done, he'd never actually been arrested for. Right. So he was born in Minnesota. He was one of eight children. And he um, reported that he felt odd from a young age. And by the time he was five, He was already lying and stealing, and he said that he got meaner the older he grew at five. Mm -hmm. 
So he uh, went to court for being drunk and disorderly at the, yeah. Whoa. And uh, in 1903, at the age of 11, he went to jail for a while for being drunk and incorrigible. So things did not start out well for him. And that's part of why I want us to do some mediumship with him is because there's a lot to explain why he was the way he was, except for not entirely. So, right. um, Right. Well, feeling wrong from the time he was really little, uh, even at seven, even at 11, he was already using alcohol, you know, using tools to try to make himself better. I mean, that that's coping. That's medicating. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. And so, you know, as I go about this story, what you're going to hear is that he's one of the most evil humans that ever existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's always the question that we have people who love true crime. This is really why we love it is trying to figure out why. Yeah. Why? Why at five years old was he already stealing and in jail for being drunk at seven? Like, why? Why did he yeah. feel wrong inside? So we're going to talk about that mm-hmm. some more. When he was 11, he stole some cake and apples and a gun from a neighbor. Mm. And so his parents sent him to the Minnesota State Training School. Oh, now, this turned out to be an absolutely horrific place. He was repeatedly beaten, tortured, and raped by staff members. Yep. I'm there. Uh, he hated the place so much that he burned it down in 1905. Yeah. Uh, they didn't know it was him that this is part of his telling of his stories Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, we find out that it was him that burned it down. Mm -hmm. So his whole life is about being in and out of correctional facilities. Mm -hmm. In 1906, he went to the Red Wing training school after stealing money from his mother's pocketbook. Uh, So his parents just don't know what to do with him. So they keep sending him to these places because they don't know what to do, you know? Yeah. Um, Lots of times he was in trouble. Oh, yeah. like his parents were truly terrified of him. Yeah. He ran away at age 14, uh, shortly after his parole from Red Wing Training School. And that was the first time that he tried to kill someone. Uh, he tried to kill a Lutheran cleric. I guess he wasn't successful, but he did try. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of became a hobo for a while and traveled the trains. Killed a lot um, of people. He killed a lot of people while he was traveling the trains. So he escaped the Montana State Reform School. There are so many places that he was incarcerated or escaped from, and we'll talk about them, but it's just crazy how many there are. Mm-hmm. So he escaped from the Montana State Reform School. Now think about this. He was from Minnesota. Right. He was quite a long ways from home at this point. Uh, they were, he was involved with another person named Jimmy Benson, and they did a bunch of burglaries and robberies and arsons throughout the Midwest. And this, he was 15 at this point. Yeah. Uh, he did enlist in the army as soon as he was old enough. Um, but he was convicted of larceny right after he enlisted and he served some, a couple of years in prison for that. So he never actually went into the army. It's sad because he joined the army because he wanted to do better. Like he thought that would be the thing. Lots of people had said, you know, mm-hmm. you need to get in the military and, and you know, let them just shake you up. Yeah. Yeah. And he really thought that would might be the ticket because there was an internal battle with him that never stopped, you know, yeah. about 
all of his bullshit and behavior. That was that was an idea to be better, to do better. And then uh, then he went ahead and screwed it up. Yeah. Yeah. And so he spent um, two years in Fort Leavenworth's United States disciplinary barracks. In one of his letters, he said, any goodness left in me was smashed out during my time at Le- in Leavenworth imprisonment. So he was released and dishonorably discharged, of course. So then he just went back to his career stealing. He stole things. He stole bicycles, yachts. Um, he was caught and imprisoned many times. He served time under his own name and, and under various aliases, aliases in, the, in the following places. Fresno. California, Rusk, Texas, um, the Dulles, Oregon, Harrison, Idaho, Butte, Montana, Montana State Reform School, Montana State Prison, Oregon State Penitentiary, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Sing Sing Correctional Facility, Clinton Correctional Facility, and in Washington, D.C. While he was incarcerated, he would frequently attack officers and he refused to follow orders. He was a very difficult prisoner. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he was beaten and punished very regularly in prison because he was always in trouble. Mm-hmm. In his autobiography, he wrote about himself that he was rage personified and that he would rape men uh, when he robbed them. He was a big guy and he was very strong. And so he was able to overpower pretty much anybody. He also just engaged in vandalism and arson. He just was just a tornado of destruction wherever he went. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, again, I think like what you said, trying to trying to do better. He tried to sign on as a ship steward on an army transport vessel, trying to get into the army again. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was discharged from that because he showed up drunk. So then is violence starts to escalate. Um, not so much just the theft and the arson, but then he really starts killing people, assaulting people. So after serving in a sentence in Rusk, Texas, he went to uh, Juarez in uh, Mexico. And he tried to enlist in the federal Mexican army, again, trying to get into the military. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't let him in, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so he took a train. Um, he has to- some idea that getting into the military and being successful there would be a way to be respectable and mm-hmm. also to have a place where he belonged and to do good. That that was the idea of the military. So there was always a goal in him, kind of even when he was you know, off the rails, that that's, that's when I'm when I'm better, this is what I'm going to do. Or when I'm successful, this is how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had that. I feel like he maybe got that like familial, uh, or there was some ancestry there of military service, uh, not in the U S but, uh, in Prussia and that he had heard a lot of talk of military from his dad. And this would be a way for his dad to finally be proud of him. This would be the way he saved himself. I, I feel like you're right that, that there was a part of him that knew that this had to stop, mm-hmm. but he had no idea how to do it. And that he thought maybe being in the military would do it. So when he didn't get into the federal Mexican army, he um, ran into a man that he abducted, assaulted, and then strangled and stole $35 from him. Just completely random yep. stranger. 
1911, he was going by an alias Jefferson Davis, and he was arrested in Fresno, California. He stole a bicycle, and he was sentenced to six months in county jail, but escaped after 30 days. He just, it was just, he had no inhibitions at all, you know? He Mm -hmm. couldn't, nothing... I mean, he it was nothing to him to escape from prison. It was nothing for him to just kill a random person. He just, there was no self-control in him in, at all. And, you know, most people in prison, you wouldn't dare try to escape. He, he didn't care. He just did. Well, he didn't care if he got killed. He didn't Very care true. if he got killed. And so he had nothing to lose at any point because he, honestly, I think, uh, oh, that's what I'm hearing from him. He was too big of a coward to kill himself. Uh, which is interesting okay. because uh, he wasn't too big of a coward to do basically absolutely anything else. Right. But he said he thought that he'd get killed at some point trying to escape from one of these places and that it would finally all be over, but that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And that a lot of the other things that he did that were very risky, he didn't care. He, he would have been happy to be taken out, but it never happened. You're absolutely right. And I'm going to read you a couple of things here in a few minutes that he said that validates exactly that. Um, let's see. So he starts going by um, Jefferson Davis. Then he goes by Jack Allen and was arrested in uh, the Dulles, Oregon for highway robbery, assault, and sodomy. He broke out of jail after two to three months. It's interesting. Like he hangs out for a while. Like mm-hmm. maybe it was just nice to have, be taken care of for a bit. Like he had somewhere to sleep and he had food and, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And learning the lay of the land. He says, learning the lay of the land, learning how things work here so that he could, he was extremely intelligent and observant. Yes. You know, I feel like his, uh, I'd be really interested. No, you know, you told me when was his birthday? It was, let me tell you. It was observation. Uh, June 28th, 1891. Oh, he was cancer. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe he was a Scorpio with those, uh, observational skills. I really wonder about what his rising and moon are though, because mm-hmm. he doesn't seem like a cancer. Um, no, no, but can I just, mm-hmm. I want to back up really fast as to his childhood. Yeah. I don't think his parents were particularly horrible. I don't know that they were particularly bonded to their kids. My first feeling is that his mother had a uh, postpartum depression mm-hmm. that so deeply and had so many kids and had him so fast that she wasn't bonding to her children at all. And uh, he particularly, she didn't bond to him. I, you know, occasionally you'll hear a mother say something like, I don't even like this baby. I don't want this baby. I don't want to be a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and have an enormous amount of guilt. That's how she felt about him. She didn't mm-hmm. want him pregnancy. She, when he was born, she didn't want to feed him. She didn't want to touch him. She didn't want him. Uh-huh. And I feel like her lack of bonding to him was probably the first straw in, you know, as well as obviously some grave mental illness, but you know, this is, but that's how it started was with her complete inability to bond to her children Uh, because she hadn't bonded to her kids. They didn't really bond to each other either. Like nobody, he had never bonded to anybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very, and dad was just uh, very uh, stoic, you know, Mm -hmm. he didn't really bond to his kids either. So yeah. Well, anyway. it, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, sorry. Carry on. That's okay. So he broke out of jail in Oregon. He was on the run for a little while and he was using the alias Jeff Davis and he was arrested, guess what, in Harrison, Idaho. Uh, but there he escaped from the county jail. Mm-hmm. 
Then he was arrested in Chinook, uh, Montana, under the alias of Jefferson Davis again, and sentenced to a year in prison for burglary to be served at the Montana State Prison. Um, in 1913, he was using the Jefferson Davis alias again and was admitted to the state prison at Deer Lodge, Montana this time. Um, he escaped, yeah, he escaped on November 13th. Within a week, he was arrested, giving his name as Jeff Rhodes in uh, Three Forks for burglary and returned to Deer Lodge for an additional year. Uh, he was released from there on March 3rd of 1915 and on June 1st. He burglarized a house in Astoria, Oregon. I mean, he just was all over the place, all over the West, particularly. Uh, and then he was arrested after that for trying to sell some of those stolen items. So he was sentenced to seven years in prison to be served in the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. Uh, he arrived there on June 24th and the warden um, believed in harsh treatment of inmates. And, you know, he'd already experienced a lot of harsh treatment in various uh, reform schools and prisons. Mm -hmm. uh, they used beatings and isolation um, to discipline them. Mm -hmm. And Pansram stated that he swore he would never do that seven years. And I defied the warden and all his officers to make me. So he was not going to stay there. He made it very clear. He had no intention of staying there. He was always, sure. he never fell in line when he was in prison. You know, eventually yeah. I think most people get to a point where they'd follow the rules because it's worth it to them. He uh -huh. never did. He nope. never did. Nope. He'd take the beating. He'd start the fight. He didn't care. Yeah. He didn't care. No. And if he killed somebody in the process, he didn't care of that either. Nope. So later that year, he helped a fellow inmate named Otto, Otto Hooker escape from that, that prison um, let's see. And while they were trying to evade recapture, Hooker killed somebody. And this was his first involvement in a, in a known murder as an accessory. Mm -hmm. Not that it was his first murder because it definitely wasn't. No, it wasn't. When he was riding the rails, it'd be kind of rode the rails actually his whole life. You know, when he wanted to go from one place to another, um, one thing that he told me was that he would, if there were like old bums that were like freezing to death and, you know, in bad shape, he'd kill them. Oh, wow. He'd, he'd kill them. Wow. He'd kill them and take whatever they had uh, that was of worth to him. But he felt like it was, he was doing them a favor because they had nothing, you know, mm -hmm. and they were, he, he said, you've never seen someone freeze so bad their fingers fell off. You know, oh. like terrible things, and mm -hmm. and so it, in some really weird ways, he saw himself like doing a humanitarian thing to you know, doing that for oh. suffering people in a really odd way. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that Hooker, uh, he said Hooker had to get out. Uh, he he needed to get to his family, so mm -hmm. Hooker had given him some you know story, which is so mm -hmm. weird because uh, he didn't usually care about anybody, but I feel like Hooker had taken care of him. They'd had each other's backs and mm -hmm. you were loyal to him. And it does seem that there's, that that's kind of a pattern for him because there's mm -hmm. so few people who were ever kind to him because what would give you the reason to, frankly, well, um, well, everyone else was scared of him. Even the other inmates were terrified of him because yeah. if he even looked at him wrong, yeah, he might literally, you know, yeah, yeah, for sure. or, or kill you or hurt you seriously. But somehow hooker, I think wasn't afraid of him and showed him some kindness and, Yep. Then told him that he really needed to get out of there because he had something. It was a family. He said he had to get to his family. Anyway, that that's why. 
that happened with him. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's very interesting. Um, he was disciplined several times while he was in um, the, the prison in Oregon, um, including doing 61 days in solitary confinement. Um, he escaped in 1917 and then he was recaptured in 1918. No, no. Oh, he was recaptured and returned to the prison shortly after that. Then in 1918, he escaped again by sawing through the bars of his cell. He caught a freight train and headed east. He started going by a new name, John O'Leary, and he shaved his head and mustache. No, just his mustache. Sorry. Sorry. And he never went back to the Northwest, which I think is probably smart because he served time in nearly every prison and jail in the whole area at the time. So he probably was a little too um, easily spotted. Yeah. So apparently he ended up in New York City and sailed on a steamship to Panama. Um, he tried to steal a small boat with the help of a drunken sailor who then killed everyone on board and was arrested. The other guy did. Wow. He has great choices and friends, man. Mm. Uh, but he traveled all around for a while after that. He went to Peru and worked in a copper mine. He went to Chile. He went back to Texas and then he went to London and Edinburgh and Paris and Hamburg. So he stayed outside the U S for a while, which I feel mm -hmm. like was just, probably trying to avoid authorities because he was, you know, wanted everywhere. Yeah. But he also says he felt different. He felt better in other countries oh. and that he, she says he should have never come back. He should oh. have never come back. He well, did better. I, I think that's true. Although he does admit to having committed a bunch of murders and rapes and stuff while he was in other countries, sure. but he came back to the U S in 1920. And that's really when he went on a murder spree. He um, burglarized someone called William, the William H. Taft Mansion in New Haven, Connecticut, who was the home of William Howard Taft. And he held him responsible for his time in Leavenworth. And Leavenworth really was uh, in the in the federal, you know, in the military prison. And he was right. seriously abused there. Mm -hmm. So he stole jewelry and bonds and he stole Taft's handgun. And then he started a murder spree that, that spanned eight years in multiple countries. So with the money that he stole from Taft, he bought a yacht called the Akista. And he would lure sailors from New York bars and get them drunk and rape them and shoot them. And then dump their bodies in the Long Island Sound. So he was living on the yacht. Mm -hmm. He claimed to have killed 10 in all the, um, of the sailors. But I, they, they really do believe he killed way more than what he admitted way to. Way more. Yeah. Way more. Yeah. In 1920, he was using the pseudonym John O'Leary again, and he was arrested in Stamford, Connecticut for burglary and possession of a loaded handgun. And in 1921, he served six months in a jail in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, after he got out there, he caught a ship to South Africa because he hasn't been to South Africa to kill anybody yet. Mm -hmm. um, he was the foreman on an oil rig in Angola and later... <laughs> burned the rig down out of spitefulness. Imagine who um, he says that he raped and killed a boy who was 11 while he was there. Um, he also in other things that he has written uh, admitted to murdering about eight uh, men in, while he was in Angola. Okay. And he would throw their bodies into the water where there were crocodiles. So Nobody ever even knew they were where they went, you know, where they went. Yeah. Yeah. 
1922, he came back to the United States where he says he raped and killed two small boys in Salem, Massachusetts, and then strangled another one in New Haven. So after that murder spree, he worked as a night watchman at the Abiko Mill Factory in Yonkers. People keep hiring this person. They keep hiring him. And you you know, now none of this would ever happen because there would be a digital footprint of him. But there was nothing. He was just free to travel around wherever and do whatever he wanted, you know. Um, He stole a yacht and sailed to New Haven. Uh, to look for victims to rob and rape and boats to steal, just as you do. Mm-hmm. Um, he stole another yacht in 1923 in New, York, New Rochelle, New York. And this yacht belonged to the police chief of New Rochelle. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a I mean, that's a mistake. <laughs> I mean, it just has no, there. he has no self-control at all. You know, he wants that he takes it, period. Right, exactly. So um in still still in 1923, he used a 38 caliber pistol from the stolen yacht and he killed a man attempting to rob him on the yacht and threw the body into the river. And he's oh, by the way, he's traveling around with um a young boy, 15. His name was George, and he was a fan of sodomizing him, and he was kind of keeping him on this yacht. Mm-hmm. Um, so he traveled around stealing stuff like fishing nets. And at one point, George witnessed him murder somebody and scared him. And so he jumped off the boat and swam to shore. And he went to the police in Yonkers and reported Panzerum for sexually assaulting him. That's wow. the first time I think mm-hmm. that somebody actually said he did this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So an alert went out for Captain John O'Leary, because that's what George thought this dude's name was, right? Mm-hmm. This is Carl Panzeram. But they, so they arrested him in New York as John O'Leary. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tried to escape from jail on July 9th of that year, um, he, but he didn't get out, which is interesting. Maybe jails were getting better. I don't know. I was just thinking that, too. Security's getting stronger. Yeah. 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 But then he conned his lawyer by giving him ownership of a stolen boat <laughs> in return for some bail money. So he skipped bail. And uh, then he was arrested again in August in Larchmont, New York, after breaking into a train depot. Three days later, on August 29th, he was cleared as a suspect in the stabbing death committed a month prior of Dorothy Kaufman of Greenberg, New York. I don't know if he did that one because historically what he's done is he's killed men. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he ever admitted to that one. I don't think he did do that one. Actually. I feel like at that point though, you know, he, he was getting quite the, uh, you know, Hey, even the aliases had all gotten quite the reputation. And so, yeah, they had admitted he was nearby. Surely it was him. Yeah. 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 So eventually was arrested again, um, got five years this time. And while he was in the county jail, he confessed to actually being Jeff Baldwin. This is another name. And that he was wanted in Oregon. And so he was trying to get um, extradited out of New York, apparently. Uh-huh. Um, but that didn't work. And he, he served five years. He was in there for uh, until 1928. 
as soon as he got out, he committed a murder in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. He was um, then arrested in Baltimore for a burglary in Washington, D.C. He was stealing a radio and jewelry from the home of a dentist because why not, you know? Uh, he confessed in his interrogation to killing three young boys earlier that month, one in Salem, one in Connecticut, and a 14-year-old newsboy in Philadelphia. Seems to me that he's getting tired at this point. Yeah. Um, he later wrote that he had contemplated mass killings and other ma- acts of mayhem, such as poisoning a city's water supply with arsenic, Or scuttling a British warship in New York Harbor to provoke war between the United States and Britain. Wow. So they got a little smarter on him in Baltimore. In light of his extensive criminal record, he received a 25 years to life sentence. He was placed, guess what, back in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. And he warned the warden, I will kill the first man that bothers me. And so he was given sol- a solitary job in the prison laundry room, trying to keep him away from other people. Mm-hmm. But in June of 1929, he beat the prison laundry foreman, Robert Mornke, to death with an iron bar. And he was then sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. He refused to allow any appeals of his sentence. Oh, yeah. He was ready. He was done. Yeah. When, when any um, death penalty opponents or other human rights activists tried to intervene, this is what he would say. The only thanks you and your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and I had my hands on it. Wow. Yeah. So it was while he was on death row that he was, he befriended this officer named Henry Philip Lesser who would give him money to buy cigarettes. Mm -hmm. He was really astonished by this because no one had ever done anything kind for him ever in his whole life. Um, Lesser also provided him with writing materials. And so Panzeram started writing him letters. Mm -hmm. And so while he was, you know, on death row, he wrote this whole summary of his crimes and his philosophy about, you know, not giving a damn about humanity in any way. Um, He made it very clear that he was not repentant at all of what he'd done. Mm -hmm. And um, in a very, in, in one statement in one of the letters, he said, in my lifetime, I have murdered 22 human beings. I have committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons, and last but not least, I have committed sodomy on more than 1,000 male human beings. For all these things, I am not in the least bit sorry. So he was hung um, on September 5th of 1930. His last words, when they went to put the black hood over his head, he spit in the executioner's face. And when they asked him for any last words, he said, yes, hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could kill a dozen men while you're screwing around. (laughs) Yep. Right? Yep. Yeah. So the Panzram, um, the Panzram letters, which is a really, there's actually a book. You can buy a book that has all the letters in it. It's very, very interesting. But I wanted to share a couple of quotes from him. Um. One is, I have lived 36 years in this world, and soon I expect to leave it. All I have, all that I leave behind me is smoke, death, desolation, and damnation. Uh, Something else that he said, I am sorry for only two things. These two things are, I am sorry that I have mistreated some, some few animals in my lifetime, and I am sorry that I am unable to murder the whole damned human race. 
You may do as you like with this that I have written. Believe it or disbelieve it, publish it or burn it or hide it or any damn thing you care to do with it. And that was that was one of the letters that he wrote. There are so many of them. It's crazy. But one of his, I would say this is kind of one of his underlying philosophies um, that he gained probably from being in prison mm-hmm. and, and from, you know, having to be, you know, basically you're, it's a kill or be killed kind of situation. But he said this, if you or anyone else will take the trouble and have the intelligence or patience to follow and examine every one of my crimes and actions, excuse me, excuse me, sorry, you will find that I have consistently followed one idea throughout all my life. I preyed upon the weak, the harmless and the unsuspecting. Those I harmed were weaklings, either mentally or physically, those who were strong, either in mind or body. I first lied to and led into a trap where they were either asleep or drunk or helpless in some way. Mm-hmm. I always had all the best of it because I knew ahead of time just what to expect and the others did not. Mm-hmm. I therefore was strong in my knowledge and stronger in my body than those I preyed upon. This lesson I was taught by others. Might makes right. Yeah. And that is Carl Panzeran. So I know you've talked a little bit about your connection to him and what you have heard, but I wondered if you can maybe give us a little bit more about, I, I'm curious, I'm always curious <clears throat> if someone has crossed over when they have committed, you know, this incredible amount of heinous actions. How do they see it now? And what does he have to say about, was he born evil? Did this come out of his upbringing? Why no. was he, you know, because he questioned even at five years old, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Does he know now what it is? Okay. Well, let's see what we can get. I know. I told you you were going to be mad at me when I told you what you were going to have to do with this case. No, he, I, I knew that you were going to ask me, and so I went ahead and just connected with him when the show started, and he's been really forthcoming, actually. Good. Yeah. All right, so I want, I want to go back to the beginning. He'd already told me that about his mother, you know, not bonding or connecting to anybody. His siblings were allowed to abuse him. Um, actually, everyone in that house was. There was a really weird energy there about of uh, not not treating each other like you matter, not treating each other like family. Mm-hmm. He was told from the time he was tiny that he was bad, from the time he was an infant that he was bad, that he was evil, that he was, uh, that word damnation really stuck on him, really stuck on him. Okay. I feel like from the time, like early childhood, he already believed that there was no saving him. And I do feel like these are lots of words that had been said to him many times by siblings, older siblings, and by parents. He was a very difficult, stubborn kid mm-hmm. who would would do what they wanted. The other part of this is that complete lack of impulse control. And he shows me, you know, that even, yeah, but he did. He says he always knew that he was wrong inside and that, uh, you know, what he'd already said about drinking to try to just feel better or feel different uh, was it's what he did to try to feel normal inside. He says he was born broken. Wow. So I asked him, what does that mean? And he he tapped on his head and he said up in here, I was born broken. 
for what that's worth. Um, he said he did hope to die. I uh, was very surprised he lived as long as he did. I'm very surprised he lived as long as he did, you know? It was pretty amazing that nobody fought back and killed him for all of the things that he did. He said it was the strength. Mm -hmm. um, and also, he didn't feel pain. Oh. He said, you could beat me all you wanted. I would hate you for it, but I wouldn't necessarily feel it, at least not like the other guys seem to feel it. Mm-hmm. I really wonder if he's one of those people that didn't have pain receptors or, or a real uh, uh, lessened effect, you know? Yeah, I mean, there are neurological problems that literally cause that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can be really dangerous, but for him, he really used it to his advantage. Right. Because, you know, when you have nothing to lose and you can't feel pain, that's a really dangerous combination, you know? Yeah. Um, I asked him about all the rapes and especially of the children. He says something would come over him that he felt like he was standing outside of himself and there was no stopping it. He said when it started, there was no stopping it until it was satisfied. Wow. Uh, I asked him if he knows why that was the case and he doesn't seem to know. Does he, did he ever feel that he had a dark entity, a bad spirit, anything like that? guiding any of this or did this all come from him no he he feels like there was something yeah because he says that so many times he could feel it coming on he said i could feel it coming on and i knew it was going to erupt mm -hmm. and that, that a thing would happen so he could feel it building in himself and uh he said, honestly, usually uh, in many cases, the uh, the victim was just whoever was nearest him at the time. Right. It did seem like it was very much just opportunistic. He didn't, mm -hmm. except for when he targeted the um, that one politician, but he didn't mostly. Right. Right. Well, yeah, his sense, he said that his sense of uh, vengeance grew as he got older, but so did his uh he said insatiable need to have what other people had. And so he said that it That's was where robberies came from. Mm -hmm. He said it was an, a never ending pit of wanting to have more, but it never worked. And I, so I asked him, what does that mean? It never worked. He said, it never actually made me feel better. Mm. It never did. Yeah. yeah. Cause he, he oh, doesn't he said, because I was just target the wealthier target people that had more than him. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of jealousy there. There's a lot mm -hmm. of jealousy there. Um, that, I believe, came from his father. His father had a very low opinion of people that had a lot of money. And, and so he kind of, it's funny how he took his childhood that, you know, wasn't great, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't this, you know. Right. But uh, there are bits and pieces of it that shine through, like parts of him that when he was a younger man actually still wanted to find some way to make his dad proud, you know. Still wanted to find some way to not be a complete screw up. But right. the older he got, the more he completely abandoned that and didn't care anymore at all. You know, I feel like had he died 15 years before he did, he would have had regret and remorse. He still had that part of himself. But mm -hmm. the more he killed and the more he was beat, the more he, you know, brought punishments on himself and things like that, the less humanity that was in him until there really wasn't anything left. Mm -hmm. wow. yeah. 
when you connect with him now being mm-hmm. crossed over, is he sorry? Does he have remorse? What is he, how does he assess what he did? That's a good question. Yeah. Yes. It's not like a broken hearted kind of sorrow or remorse. Mm-hmm. It, it's more of a, he, he said he has a lot of uh, making up to do. Hmm. He also said he cannot come back. Really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Because that was actually one of my concerns in asking you to do this was one mm-hmm. of the things that we discovered is sometimes when people have, you know, died quite a long time ago, mm-hmm. sometimes they've already incarnated again. Mm-hmm. So you can't really connect with them. Mm-hmm. He says he can't come back. Hmm? Does he know why? Like, I didn't even know that was a rule. Like he, he said it's because of this, this life, because he did, he, he broke too many things. He said he broke too many things and it's, uh, he, he can't come back. Well, I asked him, I said, was, is it your choice to not come back? Or is that the choice of, you know, what a God, a cosmic universe, a cosmic source, what? And he just said, it's not my place to come back to that place. So Maybe it's his choice. I'm not sure. He's not being totally clear on that, but he says he can't come back. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. That's very interesting. I've always wondered. Yeah. One thing I asked him because he said all of that about, you know, the human, human beings and the human race. I asked him, did you not feel like a human yourself? And he said, I never did. I never felt like other people. And so Mm -hmm. I had at a fairly young age decided I really wasn't people I wasn't like other people and maybe I wasn't a person at all yeah Mm -hmm. it's very interesting because other serial killers have made similar statements Mm -hmm. you know and then when they refer to humans they are literally referring to something other than themselves right yeah 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 him as well he said he never really felt like he was a person yeah wow which you know to go way out or down the rabbit hole and we don't have to even explore this it, it is interesting because of you know that him saying that his mother never wanted him bonded with him didn't love him as a baby and she didn't feel from him right maybe, maybe that was actually her perception yeah. there was something right awful. yeah yeah very very interesting is there anything else that he would want to share about his life He says, I didn't tell all of my stories in those letters. I told a lot of them. I shared things I could remember, but to be honest, that the death toll is largely unknown to me, or at least it was when he shared those letters. He said he, he, it's a misrepresentation of everything that he did because he couldn't, he didn't really remember a lot of it. He said a lot of times, especially like with the young men and boys, um, it was such a uh, kind of out of body event that he doesn't think that he really has a, an adequate accounting because he doesn't know. Well, that makes sense because um, people who have investigated him heavily really feel like his body count is much higher than what he, what he said it was, but because of the way that he killed people and the way that he traveled, you know, connecting him to things has been tremendously helpful. Well, it's interesting because, you know, there's a part of me that I go, oh, he's like a borderline personality, you know, that 
has no uh, no conscience at all. But he actually right. so, did have a conscience when he was younger. Yeah, it just uh, but it was a skewed, very skewed mm-hmm. sense of right and wrong, or mostly you know an entitlement. But the older he got, the less he had that. Yeah, yeah. It that seems like smart, he went over the edge eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like he said, he was always ahead. He always knew what what was coming, and they didn't. His skills of observation were bar none, really. Well, and he had absolutely no attachments. You know, there's only a couple of stories in which he was involved with another person at all. Right. He wasn't living for anybody else. That's for sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you very much for that. Mm -hmm. I just, I watched a documentary about Panzram and I've been studying him and I just thought, you know, being able to hear from him through you would be the best way for us to at least have some understanding of why someone would be the way that he was. Yeah. Some, not all. I, I still can't fully grasp it really. Well, and it, it feels to me as though he doesn't even know himself to some extent. I, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a few things we can nail down. Definitely. There was some early childhood stuff. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There was some mental illness. Definitely. There was a lack of uh, impulse control and definitely there was a sense in him that he wasn't in control of himself. In certain instances, you know, where he said he felt like he could feel it building, he could feel it coming on, and then it would erupt, and that's when bad things would happen. So, I mean, there's there's kind of those four or five counterparts or aspects of this, but um, I don't know how you tie them all together. I don't know if you can. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if you can. And with someone who's so impulsive, whose brain is not really registering everything that they're doing, Mm -hmm. if he doesn't even have conscious memory of it, then Mm -hmm. what do we have? Wow. Well, that was a heck of a case. Thank you very much. You bet. Yeah. Well, we are True Crime Paranormal, as you know. If you would like to learn more about us, go to our website. It's truecrimeparanormalpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our newsletter. You can get a reading from either of us. And you can also suggest a case. So we normally do cold cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Please, uh, at the bottom of the page, you can fill out our form. We love to do listener suggested cases. So feel free to do that. There's a place there to learn about our Patreon, to learn about the history of our show. Actually, all of our shows are available through YouTube and through our um, podcast platform right there on our website. You don't even have to go anywhere else if you don't want to, to get our content as it comes out new. Mm-hmm. So thank you for listening with us today. And we are the Psychic Sisters. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. <laughs>